0: Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm one ten one tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. a Rebel Alliance podcast. We would be honored. Hello everyone, tech guy Dave here. Sometimes schedules get messed up with various other commitments. Unfortunately, the Rebels were not able to record last week, so as a substitute for this week only, we offer Pastor Nate and his sermon at Crossroads Alliance Church from this past January 6th. If you like what you hear in this sermon... You can hear more every Sunday morning at Crossroads. Check out crossroadsac.org for more information. And stop back in next week for another podcast episode with Nate and Chris. Let's open in prayer, and uh, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... I thank you for your word, and I, I thank you, Lord, for the um, ability that we have to read your word and to get to know you. I, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. If you had not given us your word written down for us, if you had not preserved it over the years, if you had not revealed yourself to prophets and men who had penned your words to us, we would have no idea who you are. Uh, we would have an idea, we would be able to see your divine power and your attributes and the creation around us, but we wouldn't know what saving faith looks like and how to be brought back into relationship with you. So we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And I pray that this year would be a year that we spend saturated in your word, trying to understand the story um, that you're writing through history and through our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see Jesus as the centerpiece of that story. I pray that uh, this week and in the weeks to come, that you would help me to articulate all the wonderful things that uh, you've put on my heart for this year. I pray that the words on my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, Uh, that your Holy Spirit would be here actively involved in empowering the words that I speak, but also in helping us to hear your word, to understand it, and to apply it to our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, if you uh, if you want uh, to follow along in the outline provided in your bulletin um, that's uh, normally how I teach through things and you'll notice that on the back throughout this series um, there's just a series of questions and, and kind of devotionals devotionals that you can do either with your family or with your spouse or with a friend there's some questions there's an article that you can read that will um, kind of supplement the sermon today and uh, and some other verses for you to look up either as a family or as a as a couple or with some friends uh, just a way for us to further up saturate ourselves. There's also a bit of a reading plan, you'll notice, on the front page there. And uh, that won't get you reading through the entirety of Scripture this year, but it'll get you reading through the majority of it. And uh, I would encourage you to read those, uh, those chapters listed there in preparation for next week's sermon and to just further saturate yourself in God's Word uh, this year. So this is week one of the story of Jesus, this, uh, this ambitious uh, thing that we're doing. We're trying to teach through the entire scripture in one year. Uh, the first week is called the story and the song. The question is, what is this series all about? And the series itself is about Jesus and how Jesus is the centerpiece of the story that God is telling. What I want each and every one of us to, to have hammered into our minds over the course of this year is that God didn't just create the world and take his hands off the wheel, but I want you to think of God as an author, an author who wrote a story, and the story that he wrote is the story that is unfolding in history. Everything that's happened from the beginning of time until the end of time and everything in between is the story that God has written. And and in order to fill up this story with characters, he's written each and every one of us into his story for better or for worse. Psalm 139 actually says it this way. It says that in his book, that is the book that he's writing, the story that he's writing in his book are written all the days of my life before any one of them came to pass. As the Psalm 139 says, and it says that about um, uh, David is writing the psalm, He writes it about his own life, but it's true for each and every one of our lives. Every person who's been created from the beginning of history to the end of history is a character in God's story, and and that psalm goes on to say that he knit us together in his mother's womb, meaning that he made each and every one of us with our character qualities, our quirks, our, our strengths, and our weaknesses in order to be the character that he needs us to be in his story, the story that he's writing, and the story that's being told through history to unfold exactly as he's ordained it to happen. And that's what the story of Jesus is because he's placed Jesus at the very center of the story that he's writing. So why are we doing this series? I have a couple of uh, reasons that I think um, it's worth going through a series like this and trying to bite off um, the entirety of Scripture uh, in, a, in the course of a year. It's Because number one, real community can't happen without Jesus. One of the things that came out of the planning symposium, which is uh, many of the leaders in the church sit down and we talk about uh, things that our church can do to better reflect God's plan for the church and and how God is uniquely equipping us and calling us to serve this community, uh, both inside the walls and outside the walls of our church. And one of the things that came out of the planning symposium the first time that we did it was just the, the need for community. That in a world like ours where so much community is happening online, through social media, through text messages, and all this kind of stuff, that people are feeling the, the, the disconnection, the loneliness, the ennui of disembodied community where they don't actually sit down and fellowship and share meals with people the way God intended us to. They don't sit and laugh and eat together and all those kinds of things. And so as a church family, we said, hey, let's go camping together. Let's do more church picnics together. Let's do these sorts of things. And we started to fill up our calendar with that. But as I was thinking about that and as I was praying about that, what I realized is that the community that we all seek, the community, the the fellowship, the deep relationships that we all want is impossible without Jesus because Jesus is at the center of all authentic human communication and fellowship. It's actually impossible for those without Jesus to have authentic community. They can fake it, they can find common interests, they can find things that kind of draw them together by ethnicity or background or things they're interested in or socioeconomic class, they can join clubs and all that kind of stuff and they can get together but without Jesus, the lamb who is slain at the center of their fellowship, it's not real fellowship. And so in order for us to have the authentic community that I think God is calling us to have as a church family, we need to know Jesus, know him well, and love him. And so that's one of the reasons that I think this series is important. The second reason, I think, is because too many Christians don't know the grand narrative of Scripture. There are a whole lot of Christians who can quote Bible verses, and that's a good thing. And there's a whole lot of Christians who, who know their favorite Bible verses, and they can quote you know, John 3.16 and Jeremiah 29.11, those, those key verses that they have written on a wall or on a napkin or on a card that they send out to people. But we lack how the verses that we read in our daily devotions connect to the grand story of Scripture. And I think it's important for us to be literate when it comes to the grand narrative of Scripture because otherwise, when we read things in isolation, we can't put them together. Because the Bible is one big story, and if we only know bits and pieces of that story and not how those bits and pieces fit together, we don't know where God's taking the story and we don't know where the story's been. And therefore, we struggle to find our place in it. And so by by taking a year to fly through scripture and to show you how Jesus is at the center and how all these pieces in the Old Testament, how the the rebuilding of the wall by Nehemiah connects to what happened in the book of Acts with the uh, apostles and uh, all these things, showing you how these things all fit together, I think will be helpful for us to raise our biblical literacy, to help us love Jesus more as we see him at the center of it, help us appreciate God and his sovereignty more, but understand the grand narrative of scripture. And the third reason we're doing this series is because knowing the whole story helps us know and love Jesus more. The more we see him at the center of the story, the more we see the details of the story. And as we go through, keeping in mind the, the, um, where the story is heading, keeping in mind that Jesus is at the center of it, looking for the clues for Jesus in every story of the Bible, what you're going to see is that everything was hinting, everything was foreshadowing. God wrote this story, and he had all of these little inside jokes written into it so that people who are looking got a glimpse of where he was going with the story, even though they might be seeing, as the New Testament says, through a mirror darkly. So so those are the reasons that we're going through this series. I want to start in John chapter 1. This is John's version of in the beginning, and this is where I want to kind of root this introductory sermon today. doing his best to summarize the entirety of Scripture up until the incarnation of Jesus. What he's essentially saying is that in the very beginning was the Word. And and we know that when he comes to the point where he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's talking about Jesus. So what he's saying is, in the beginning, Jesus was there. And everything that was made was made through Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus is part of the Godhead. And he created everything, and everything was in darkness, and he came as light into the world, and all of those who would put faith in him would be born not of the will of man, not of the flesh, but born of God. And so what he's, he's, he's telling us a bit of the grand narrative of scripture here, he's telling us that God planned to send himself, his son, part of the Godhead, into the world in order to save people from the darkness. And all those who would put faith in him would be saved from the darkness and would be born and be part of God's family. And then he says, and in order to accomplish this, he had to become flesh. He had to become part of us. He had to come into the world. And he's setting up his gospel account here as one who bore witness to these things. So that's John's sort of summary of uh, the entirety of the Old Testament leading up to the Incarnation. And what I want you to think about is, is think about that, that weekly question that we have out by the coffee nook there. If you were asked to summarize the entirety of scripture in one sentence, how would you do it? If somebody just casually asked you, and, and for some reason you knew that you only had a very short amount of time to answer the question, somebody said, what is the Bible all about anyway? You know, a good, a good answer would certainly be Jesus. But if you had some time now to think about what's the sentence, what's the, the, the couple of sentences, what's the paragraph, what's, what's the thing that I would say that would summarize the entirety of Scripture? And if you've never thought about this or you're sitting there thinking, I have no idea how I'd answer this question, let me just remind you that this book has everything that we need for life and for godliness. This is God's revealed will for mankind. This is our life manual. We ought to know it well enough to know how to summarize it. So, many people will think, many, many, uh, specifically people who, who might not uh, be on the inside of Christianity, they might look at it and say, well, the Bible is a list of rules, and certainly the Bible has some rules in it, but primarily it's not a rule book. God gives us his law, he gives us his rules, because he's telling us and teaching us how life works best in the world that he created some people will look at it and say, well, it's a book full of heroes. They think about David, and they look, uh, think about Moses, and they think about Daniel, and they think about all those heroes, and they say, you know, it's, it's about all these heroes, and, and and primarily, the book is not about a whole lot of heroes. In fact, as we go through and we look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses, what we're going to see is that most of the quote-unquote heroes of Scripture are not heroes at all. Many of them are, are actually really awful people who do some pretty awful things. The Bible isn't about individual people. The Bible is about God and what he has done. Some people will look in, in, uh, at, uh, at Scripture and... And maybe say that uh, what the Bible is, is all about is a whole lot of fables, a whole lot of tales, a whole lot of stories that help us know how to live. Well, the Bible isn't a book full of fables, Aesop's fables sort of thing, more, little morality lessons. Though sometimes in some churches and in some Sunday school um, curriculums, we teach it that way. Here's a little story and here's the thing that you can learn about that story to help you be a good little boy or girl. But that's not what the Bible is either. The Bible is one big story. The Bible is a story about one individual person. It's about God, and primarily it's about God becoming flesh. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And when you think about it this way, and you think about all of the stories that mean the most to us, right? I don't know if you're a... uh, Lord of the Rings or a Star Wars kind of person, or maybe you're neither of those, maybe you're Anna Green Gables kind of person, but there's, there's a reason that we are drawn to good stories, right? There's a reason we're drawn to good stories, because at the center of this story is a hero, right? A hero who leaves his homeland and comes to a faraway place to destroy evil, to vanquish a dragon, to win back his love, That's at the heart of the story of of the Bible, right? It's about a prince who leaves his throne, who goes off to a foreign land where they don't know him, love him, and he goes there in order to win back the princess for himself. That's why his people are called his bride. That's what the church is. Because God has written these details into the very story of the Bible, this is why we're so drawn to good storytelling. Because the Bible is a good story. And more than that, it's a true story. Here's here's a couple of some of my favorite pastors and and authors and theologians and how they answer the question. How would you summarize the Bible in one sentence? So Kevin DeYoung, um, a couple years ago we introduced the story, The Biggest Story, which is a kid's story that he wrote. He's also written a lot of books that I've recommended, A Hole in Our Holiness, Why We Love the Church. Kevin DeYoung is a great pastor and author. He summarizes the Bible this way. He says, a holy God sends his righteous son to die for unrighteous sinners so we can be holy and live happily with God forever. It's a pretty good summary. Um, Jared Wilson, who is another uh, author and pastor that I uh, really like, he wrote uh, a couple books that I've recommended several times, The Story of Everything, The Imperfect Disciple. Uh, We had him up uh, last year for the Kaporis Conference. And Jared Wilson said it this way. He said, God created mankind in order to love them, but we all rejected his love. So God sent his son to bear our sins on the cross in order that by believing in his sacrificial death, we might have life pretty good summary as well. Um, Andreas Kostenberger, uh, if you have a CSB or an ESV Bible, he's one of the guys who helped translate that. Uh, We had him up for Kaporis a couple years ago. We went through our Biblical Manhood and Womanhood series. Andreas Kostenberger, he summarizes the Bible this way. He says, the main message of the Bible is that the one true God is displaying his glory primarily in redeeming and restoring his fallen creation by fulfilling his covenant promises and commands through the glorious person and atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's pretty good, too. Heavy, it's good. Kossenberger's brain is about this big. Doug Wilson, um, another one of my favorite uh, pastors. He's, uh, I, I suggested over Christmas time that you watch the movie Saving Christmas. He's the pastor who's in there. He's authored a few books uh, like Heaven Misplaced and uh, Empires of Dirt. Uh, Doug Wilson summarizes the Bible this way. He says, Scripture tells us of the story of how a garden is transformed into a garden city, but only after a dragon had turned that garden into a howling wilderness, which lasted until an appointed warrior came to slay the dragon, giving up his own life in the process, but with his blood affecting the transformation of that wilderness into a garden city. It's a good summary. I like that one. So the reason we're drawn to stories is because at the heart of the Scriptures is a story about a prince, a story about a hero, the story of Jesus that runs through every single page. And what we want to do is we want to go through all of the stories and show how Noah and the Tower of Babel And the story of Abraham and the story of Isaac and the story of David and the story of Daniel, all of those stories point us to Jesus and foreshadow the eventual Messiah, the rescuer, the prince, the warrior who is going to come and fix everything. That's what we're going to be doing through this series. But before we do that, I want to tell you the story before the story. Because we have in scripture a a story about God's saving grace. We have a story about Jesus, why he had to come, all of the ways in which man tried to uh, atone for themselves before Jesus finally came and showed the way back to God. Before that story that we have in the pages of scripture, there was another story. So today we're going to go through the story before the story. And it's very much rooted in scripture, but it's maybe a story that you haven't heard before. So the story before the story. The first thing about the story before the story is that God has always existed as three persons. So before God created the world, before he, um, before the, uh, the plan of history um, began to be played out, God has always existed as three persons. Now this, if you're new to the church, if, you, if you've been in church for a long time, then you know that Every analogy anybody has ever used to try to describe the Trinity falls into heresy. (laughs) At some some point, you say, "Oh, you know, God's kind of like you know water, and there's the liquid form, and and that falls into a a heresy of its own." And or you say, "Oh, you know, how I'm a a father and a husband, and I'm also a son, um, so I have three roles, even though I'm one person." Um, That kind of works, but that also falls into heresy. It's an ancient heresy called modalism. So. Rather than give you an analogy, let me try to break down the Trinity for you. Okay, let me just start by saying this. The things that we're going to talk about in terms of the story before the story, these, these things belong under the Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine that says the secret things belong to the Lord. But the, that which he's revealed to us is for us and for our children. So what Deuteronomy tells us is that there's some things that this side of eternity we will never understand fully. And we have to be okay with that as, as, as Christians. And the reality is it's not just the Christian faith that has those tensions, right? Ask anybody who doesn't believe in God, who believes that the universe got here through a big bang, ask them what started the big bang. Everybody gets to a point where they take something on faith, everybody. And so as Christians, we believe, we don't, we don't believe that all of the, the wonderful, intricate, designed systems in the world around us came about by random cosmic accidents we believe in a, uh, a creative, intelligent God who created the world with design. That's what we believe. But there are still things about the Trinity and, and things like that that are our struggle for our minds to comprehend. But let me do what I can. So most of this, if, if you're academically minded, I would suggest to you, uh, you can just go online, you can Google uh, Jonathan Edwards' unpublished essay on the Trinity. If you're academically minded, that might be a way that you can, um, can kind of get this better than I'll give it to you. If you're not as academically um, minded, that's okay. Then you can grab the book, um, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Okay, So there's a couple resources to help you understand. But let me take a crack at it here. The, the, the way to think about the Trinity, I think, that is the most helpful, or at least has been the most helpful for me, is exactly what we read in John 1. That in the beginning was the word, and, and this word the, the word word, <laughs> the word that is translated word is is more than just speech there's so much wrapped up in that word it, it means wisdom, it means knowledge, it means um, uh, spoken word, it means revelation, it means all kinds of these things it's, it's a really hard word for us to to pin down into one concept we've we've translated it to word here for for brevity's sake but that idea, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jonathan Edwards talks about it this way. He says, if you have a, an idea of yourself, so think about yourself right now. I know in church, we're not generally supposed to think about ourselves too much, but right now you have permission. Think about yourself for a minute, and think about some of your qualities, right, right? maybe your height, your, your, uh, the color of hair, color of eyes, physical attributes, but also what you're good at, what you're like, what your personality is like. You talkative, you social, are you um, withdrawn? Are you um, an extrovert, an introvert? Think about some of your qualities. So here's, I, I hate to break it to you. Your idea of yourself is imperfect. Some of you think you're better at things than you really are. <laughs> some of you think you're smarter than you are. You know, some of you think that you're more athletic than you are. Uh, Some of you think you're more charming than you are. Um, the, the, The opposite is also true. Some of you are far better looking than you think you are. Some of you are far better socially than you think you are. But whatever the case is, there's a discrepancy between what you believe about yourself and the way that you actually are. That's because you're imperfect. Welcome to the club. We're all there. But God, being perfect, having all knowledge, having all wisdom, his idea of himself is perfect in every way. It's an exact match. And because it is perfect, it also has the divine attribute of existence. I I know this is Jonathan Edwards. He's getting a little heady. But think about this for a minute. If God has a perfect understanding about who he is, a perfect image of himself, a perfect knowledge of himself, what John 1 is telling us is that knowledge of himself, that wisdom of himself, that image of himself Was with God in the beginning and was God, and that that word became flesh. So, the way to think about the Trinity is that Jesus is the exact perfect mental image of God for himself, but because he is perfect in every way, he exists rather than not exist. And therefore, the mental image, the knowledge, the wisdom of God is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. And because God is the most beautiful, glorious, perfect thing in the entire universe, he loves that image of himself. And that image of himself, which has personhood, loves him back. And that love and affection between one another is also divinely perfect and therefore also exists rather than doesn't exist and exists as the Holy Spirit. That's how Jonathan Edwards defines the Trinity. And so it's a way, it's, it's a little bit heady, Michael Reeves gets into it in delighting in the Trinity if you want a a, a really kind of simplistic form of that. Jonathan Edwards gets really heady as Jonathan Edwards often does. But those are two resources that you can go and look more of that. But if you think about the Trinity in that way, then you see how they can be three and one. Distinct in personhood because they exist by their own merit, but attached and together because they're all the same essence. That's how we think about the Trinity. That's one of the many ways to think about the Trinity. So God, that God, that triune God, has always existed. And because they're all separate persons, there's fellowship and there's, there's community within the, the triune nature of God. That's why it's important to start here And it's it's important to start with the tri-unity of God. We we use the word trinity, just means tri-unity of God. The reason it's important to start there is because we can't assume that God wrote this story and created everything out of some sort of lacking in and of himself. He had perfect community, perfect fellowship, perfect joy, perfect happiness in the triune God. So then why? Why write the story? Why create anything? That's where we get into here, so, story, behind, or story before the story. God has always existed as three persons. Number two, there is an eternal covenant within the Godhead to establish the plan of salvation. So, the question is, well, why did God create then? Well, we're gonna get there, but before we get there, the other part of the story before the story to understand is that there was an agreement so within that tri-unity, within the Godhead, within those three persons of the Trinity, there was an agreement from eternity past. There was a covenant, we call it. A covenant is simply a, a, a relationship where there are um, stipulations on both sides and, and, and um, promises and stipulations that go both ways in the covenant. And so within the Godhead, there is an agreement. There is a covenant. Zechariah calls it the council of peace. But it's, it, it's littered throughout the Bible this hint of something happening in eternity past. Whenever the Bible says before the foundation of the world or in eternity past, when it uses those phrases, it's talking about before God laid the foundation for the world, before God created the world. So the question that, that might be a very good question for a child to ask you one day um, Quinn hasn't quite gotten here yet, but she's already asking tough enough questions that I get phone calls every once in a while, like, uh, how do I answer this one? One of the things that your, your kid might ask you one day is, what was God doing before he created? It's a good question. What was God doing before he created? Well, again, we have to re- remember that God didn't lack anything. He didn't create people because he was lonely or he needed fellowship. He had that within the triune, triunity of God but there is this agreement there is this covenant there is this this plan for salvation that was marked out before the foundation of the world charles hodge is a, uh, a theologian, and he, he describes the covenant of redemption this way, and that's what that, that covenant, that agreement is called. Zechariah calls it the Council of Peace. Um, the, theologians call it the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant of redemption. That happened before the, the story even starts. So Charles Hodge says The covenant of redemption is the agreement made between the members of the Trinity in order to bring us salvation. It's a really good, simple definition. Let me read that again, then I'll finish the quote. The covenant of redemption is the agreement made between the members of the Trinity in order to bring us salvation. We find allusions to it in several biblical texts. Under this covenant, the Father plans redemption, sends the Son in order to save his people. The Son agrees to be sent and to do the work necessary to save the elect. The Spirit agrees to apply the work of Christ to us By sealing us unto salvation, so that's how Charles Hodge describes this agreement that happened in eternity past. This story before the story. I just want to read a couple of passages of Scripture to you, Um, so you can mark down Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two. I'm going to start uh, at, at verse seven. It says, "I will tell of the decree." So you ask the question, well, what's the decree? This decree is this eternal covenant of redemption. It's this agreement within the Godhead. So verse seven, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the question is, God the Father says to God the Son, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. So ask the question, when did God the Father ask Jesus that question? These are hints in scripture of a conversation and agreement that happened in eternity past when God the Father says to the Son, ask me and I'll give you the nations. Ask me and I will give you all that we create together. Philippians 2 is an even uh, more compelling one. So listen to the words of Philippians chapter 2. I'll start in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying just be humble like Jesus was. And he's going to tell us how it is that Jesus displayed humility. So having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, Now think about other passages you know. We don't have time to go to all of them. Some of them are on the the backside of your outline, but think about in John chapter six. John chapter six, Jesus is talking to his disciples and to the Pharisees, and he says to them, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. And he says, God the Father has given you to me And no one can snatch you out of my hand. God, the father has given you to me and all that he has given to me, I will raise up on the last day. So you notice, excuse me, you notice that there are roles there, right? There are roles. All that the father has given to me, I will hold and I will raise them up on the last day, right? No one can come to me unless the father sends him and then I will raise him up. There are roles there that are going on. Think about John chapter 17. John chapter 17, um, this is where Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, "Um, I pray for all those that you have given me, right? The time has come for you to glorify your son. Well, what time? According to what plan? According to this eternal covenant, this eternal agreement between the three members of the Trinity to save people. So the plan of salvation, essentially the, the covenant of redemption is simply the plan of salvation that was planned by the Godhead in eternity past. This is why verses like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 where it says, You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, he had in his mind's eye each and every person who was going to belong to him and you chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Why? Because there was an agreement before the foundation of the world that those are the people that I'm going to save. God the Father chooses them, draws them to the Son. The Son does the work that is required to actually save them. The Holy Spirit seals them with the work of Jesus. And on the last day, Jesus raises us up to live with God forever. That's the eternal covenant of redemption. That's the plan of salvation that was hatched before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world. This is the story before the story. And then, so then the question is why? And here's the last point, the story behind the story. As far as we're told, God's purposes in creation and covenant are to reveal his holiness. Through the Advent series, I I mentioned that uh, a good definition of God's glory, which seems to be the end goal, there are all kinds of passages about God saying that he created man for his glory, that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Um, Isaiah Uh, In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. One of the things we taught over the Advent series is that God's glory, which seems to be the end game, is his holiness on display. And a simple way to think of God's holiness is just all of the attributes that make him unlike us. All of the uniquely God qualities of God are his holiness, Those are the things that separate him from the rest of us, make him unlike us. So the end goal of both creation and covenant is that God's godness will be on display to the world. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so we we, we will never understand all of these things perfectly. Much of this falls into that Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to God. But what he has revealed to us is for us and for our kids. And so if you go um, really Quickly, Actually, we'll go there a little bit later. But um, we, So the end goal of creation and covenant, the, the reason God created, the reason God put this covenant together was because, not because he needed our fellowship and not because he needed an audience, but because his holiness is so worthy of praise that an audience would bring him more glory than no audience at all. So, God created the world and everybody in it and wrote this entire story to put on display Himself. So the world would see the beauty of God. That's the whole point of creation. That's the whole point of the story. That's the whole point of each and every one of our individual lives. That's the whole point of Jesus crucified, risen, and ascended. That's, that's what it's all about. God's Godness being seen by the created order, being put on display before an audience. That's, that's what it's all about. That's the motivation of the story before the story. So here's the big idea. Here's what I want us to kind of grasp. This is the same big idea that they'll be going through in Inside Out Kids and all these places is that everything God made tells us what he's like. Everything God made tells us what he's like. So if the end goal of creation and covenant and all of these things is to put God on display, then everything that he's made shows us him, shows us what he's like. So when we look around, in fact, just this morning, because I had this in my mind, otherwise I probably would have gotten annoyed because I'm a sinner, Um, on the drive in, you know, Quinn's asking a zillion questions in the back as she always does. And she looks at the sky and she says, dad, why is the sky pink? Because the sky was pink, right? There's, there's the pink colors underneath the clouds. And in, in one of my very few moments of good parenting, um, I, I said, God made it that way so that you could see how beautiful the sky was. And she, and she got all excited and she said, and look, I see blue and I see green too. He made that for me, it was a beautiful parenting moment. Like I said, it's, they're few and far between, so I gotta brag about them while I can. Most of the time it's like, hey, turn the music up, right? But no, and that's true, that God creates a beautiful sky to reflect his beauty to us. God creates the complexity of atoms and molecules in order to show us his complexity. God creates um, all kinds of, of um, look. Even, even you look at uh, like the, the, uh, the way in which a seed goes into the ground and dies and then brings forth new life, right? He's showing us parts of the story, this death and resurrection right there, right? The, the way in which the, um, the uh, um, animals, I could get lost in this forever. The reality is that everything that God has made shows us what he's like. He show, he, he and, and at the pinnacle of his creation, we'll get to this next week, so I can't, that's why I can't get too far into this, but the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, made in his image, made as moral agents, with moral choice, so they can reflect his character. So everything that God has made shows us what he's like. And so there's three points that I kind of want to hang off of that big idea. So everything God made tells us what he's like. First point I want to hang off that is God created the whole world to display his existence, his beauty and his power. His existence, his beauty and his power. It's interesting that uh, in Romans chapter one, which isn't where we're going to go, but you can jot that down for your own study if you want. In Romans chapter one, it says that he created the whole world and it says that his divine attributes have been on display so that it would be plain to us. Romans 1 actually tells us that there's no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as a person who doesn't believe in God because when, the, when, when anybody looks at the world around us and they see the intricacy and the beauty and the design, they know that there's a God, but in their rebellion against God, they don't want to be accountable to a creator. Therefore, they suppress the truth they know about God and exchange the truth of God and begin to worship the created order rather than the creator. That's what Romans 1 tells us. So the world actually makes God's existence plain to us. And I've, said, I've used this analogy many times. When we stand before a beautiful sunset or, or Niagara Falls or some amazing work of God's nature, not one of us looks at that and says, Man, I'm amazing. All of us look at that and recognize that we are small and insignificant and finite. And there is something that is beautiful and wonderful, but it's not us. It's something outside of us that created the beauty that we're beholding. So God created the whole world to display his existence, his beauty, and his power. Uh, Linda uh, quoted this with the kids earlier, but Psalm 19 starts off in verse one. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's such a beautiful passage that, that, that quite literally the created order is singing about the glory of God. And that's, that's, that's why when we're in nature, when we see a, everything from a beautiful flower blooming, that God is the one who made flowers flower and, and trees grow and, and water fall and all of these intricacies, and he's done all of it, not by accident, not randomly, but everything by design to show us what he's like. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And it says, day to day pours out speech. So the sky on the way into church this morning was, was singing to our family about the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God. And every night sky sings to us. Every molecule in this created order, beautifully made and designed by God, sings. And it says, day to day pours forth speech about God and his goodness and his beauty and his wonder. But most of us have our heads so buried in our cell phones that we never hear the song. But God has been singing through created order about his goodness from the beginning of creation. The second point I want to hang off that. So God created the whole world. So remember, So this is just getting us into the story. We're not even in the Garden of Eden yet. That's where where the creation happens. But we're, we're talking about the story before the story. Everything that God decided to make in eternity past tells us what he's like. The created world tells us about his existence, his beauty, and his power. And then God wrote the story to display his justice and his mercy. So I said that God wrote the story in order to show us himself. And so the created order shows his beauty, it shows his power. And the story, the intricacies of the story, this plan of salvation is there so it displays God's justice and his mercy. If you go to um, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9 is so rich, I I don't have time to unpack it all, but it's certainly worth your thought, your attention, your study. But I'll summarize by simply saying that, that Paul is wrestling with the sovereignty of God. And in particular, he's wrestling with, with one of the things that we all wrestle with, and that is, if God is sovereign and has written the entire story, then how are my choices real? How is, how is my character in the story not just some fatalistic person? How, how is it not determined? How does man's responsibility and my free agency work in the midst of God's sovereignty? That's what Paul is wrestling with in Romans 9. Spoiler alert, he doesn't give a super clear answer. <laughs> Sorry, but he wrestles with all kinds of things. And one of the things he gets to in verse 19, he says, you will say to me, why then does he still find fault? In other words, if he wrote my part in the story, why am I responsible for the bad things that I do? And then Paul says, for who can resist his will? But who are you? This is Paul's, Paul's conclusion. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for an honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So essentially what he's saying is you didn't write the story. You only exist because you're a character in God's story. Who are you to speak back to him? And the reality is, is that Paul would say the same thing to anybody who says that's, you know, that's not fair. What if, what if I'm not one of God's chosen people? Paul would have the same answer that I would give you right now, and that is put faith in Jesus Christ and you are one of his chosen people. Jesus does not turn away any who come to him in authentic faith. Call on him. There's one prayer um, uh, in Psalms that talks about how um, the, the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. But there's one prayer that God will always answer, and that is the prayer of repentance. Prayer of repentance and faith. Not of not a not a, a formulaic you know ask Jesus into your heart sort of prayer, but a genuine prayer of repentance and faith saying, "I know that I am not a good person, that I am outside of God's grace, and that I am separated from God, and I need a rescuer who has paid the penalty for me so that I don't have to pay the penalty of death that that authentic prayer will always be answered, but then um, Paul goes on to say, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, that's not something we like to think about very often. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So essentially, let me summarize what Paul, the conclusion Paul comes to is. Paul comes to the conclusion that he says, look, at the end of the day, there are some people who are going to accept Christ and show faith in him, and there are going to be those who are outside, who are not part of God's family. And the reality is, in the story that God wrote, both are necessary, because those who accept Christ and receive his kindness and his mercy, it displays his loving kindness and his mercy. And for those who are outside of God's grace, who die with their fists in the air, being shaken at God, saying, I don't need you, then his wrath is poured out and his justice is on display. And if all the people in the world were in one category or the other, either his mercy wouldn't be shown or his justice wouldn't be shown, but both are equally part of God's character and therefore both are necessarily displayed to the world in order to see the full glory of God it would be like a judge who has never handed down a sentence in his life who every criminal he sees lets each one of those criminals go because he continues to show them mercy that judge we would question his sense of justice but there are those justice there are those judges getting my j's mixed up here there are those judges who look at a particular case and look at the particular circumstances around that case, and they do show mercy and they do show kindness to the person who is charged with something because they look at the external circumstances. Now, God, being perfect, can never allow evil to go unpunished. And that was the whole plan of Jesus. That's why, in the eternal covenant of redemption, Jesus is brought in because God is a perfect judge, will always punish evil, but he doesn't have to punish evil by punishing you. He will punish evil by punishing Jesus in your place. So God created the created order, the world, in order to display his beauty and his power, and God wrote the story that he did, the history that he has, in order to display his justice and his mercy. The last thing to note, the last thing to hang off that big idea is that God placed his son at the center of it all to show himself perfectly. So we can learn some things about God and who he is by looking at the world around us. We can learn some things about God by looking at the story that he's written and how it's unfolding around us. But ultimately, to get a perfect picture of God, he sent Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 1 says it this way. In verse 1 it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Colossians 1 also says that God, Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact image of the invisible, is the visible image of the invisible God. So God placed Jesus at the very center of the story to show us exactly what he's like. And so, in the created order, in the story that's unfolding, Jesus becomes the primary character, the primary centerpiece. And so, as we unfold the story through the pages of scripture, we're going to see that Jesus is there every step of the way. Hints at Jesus. Promises of Jesus, um, shadows of Jesus. We're going to see him from start to finish the, throughout this entire book because at the, at the, the whole thing is about displaying God's glory and God is most glorified in the exact image of himself, which is Jesus. And as I said, cre- the created order, and we're, we'll talk about this over the next couple of weeks, and the humanity that God created cursed because of sin, reversed because of Jesus. Jesus is at the center of this entire story, which is why the whole thing is about him and why this year we're gonna be focusing on the story of Jesus. And since we're talking about Jesus, there is no better way to segue into taking communion. And one of the things that we wanted to do in, uh, in having communion is, uh, I don't know what your 2018 was like. Um, maybe some of you had a really tough 2018. Maybe a lot of you are uh, coming off holidays that maybe weren't all that enjoyable. Uh, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but um, it's appropriate for us the very first Sunday of 2019 to take communion together and be reminded that Jesus is at the centerpiece of this story. And so all of your failures from 2018 and every year before that, and all your failures in the first six days of 2019, all of them paid for by the blood of Jesus. All of them paid for by the, the, the protagonist of this story that we're going to spend all year thinking about, praying about, meditating on, and learning about. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. If you're uh, here this morning, uh, we practice open communion, which just means you don't have to be a church member in order to take communion with us. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you have Placed your faith in him, you believe this story and that he died a substitutionary death for you, then we would invite you to take communion with us. And if that's not you today, then I would encourage you to keep coming. Keep coming throughout the series. Keep seeing Jesus in the pages of scripture and we hope that through uh, studying the scriptures and looking at Jesus together that he would shine gospel light into your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, your word tells us that Jesus has died the death that we should have so that we don't have to be punished for all the wrongdoing that we have done. We pray, Lord, that you would help us right now to remember Jesus and all that he means for us and wait with eager anticipation as we see him on every page of scripture in the year to come. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.